We're now going to spend some time studying the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we're continuing our series called Finding Jesus in the Ten Commandments. Finding Jesus in the Ten Commandments. As we've been moving through the series, we've said there's a few different ways we can get to Jesus through the Ten Commandments. One is just recognizing that he is the Lord of all of scripture. In Luke chapter 24, he told his disciples on the road to Emmaus that he is what the Old Testament is all about. And then we've said specifically in Romans chapter 3 that Paul says when you look at the law, you recognize, man, I'm not, I'm not measuring up. I'm not as righteous as I should be, and that is what shows us our need for forgiveness, our need for the cross, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for people like you and me that haven't measured up. And the law is penetrating. When we actually study it, when we take the time to look at it, we recognize that those of us that grew up rebellious and just kind of threw God's law out, we can see that we were sinners, but also it shows those of us that grew up religious and thought we were righteous. It shows us as well. No, we're, we're not righteous either. We need an outside righteousness that comes from Jesus. And so those are different routes by which we see Jesus through the Ten Commandments. This week, we're looking at the commandment about stealing, about theft, and I'm calling it give, don't take. Give, don't take. Jesus sets up in John chapter 10 a pretty big contrast between him and the devil. He says the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says he came to give life and to give it to the full. That's the contrast. Our choice is what what kind of person are we going to be? I read a movie review several years ago uh, about the movie The Dark Knight. It was the second in the famous Batman trilogy that came out years ago. It was maybe the scariest one with the Joker. Y'all remember that one? Heath Ledger, I think, died before the movie even came out, right? But Heath Ledger was the famous actor that um, starred in that role. And I want to read a little review to you about Heath Ledger's role playing this bad guy. For those of you who don't know, the Joker's a bad guy. um, Playing this role as the Joker. And this reviewer says this. He says, the film's early reviews have been gently quizzical about the late, lamented Heath Ledger's magnetic performance as the Joker. So the early reviews were a little quizzical, right? Like they were a little unsure of his performance. It's obvious that he's doing a superb job. Everybody said he was fantastic, but nobody seems to know what he's doing. So people were like, man, he was incredible in this role, but we're not sure exactly what he's doing there. What is it that makes it so incredible? So this reviewer says this. He says, let me clear things up. He's playing Satan. Let me clear things up. He's playing Satan. Heath Ledger flicks his tongue like a snake. He tempts people to kill one another, and he's gleefully sloppy with bullets, bombs, and knives. Everyone else plays gangland stereotypes, but Ledger's Joker has escaped to the movies from Milton, like John Milton's Paradise Lost, or from C.S. Lewis's book, Paralandra, books that represent satanic characters. He says, it's hard to know what his character did to someone like Ledger, who flung himself into every role. What it does to the film, though, is to create a, a character entirely opposite to Batman. He's a terrorist in the most basic sense of the word. Terror is not his means, it's his end. Everything burns, he observes happily. Everything burns. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that we might have life and have it to the full. So I'm titling our sermon today, Give, Don't Take, because we want to give. We want to be like Jesus who, who gives, who came to give 
life. We don't want to be like Satan, the enemy of our souls, who takes. And the way this is said in Exodus in the Ten Commandments is found in Exodus 20, 15. So let me read that to us. In Exodus 20, 15, only two words in Hebrew. It says this, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. Don't take. Remember, he's talking to this rescued people. God has just rescued a people and said, I'm rescuing you from slavery. I'm going to make you my people. And now this is what I want you to live like. Don't take anymore. Don't steal. Trust that I am going to take care of you. Do you trust that God will take care of you? Or do you think you need to scratch and fight and claw and steal to protect yourself, to get what you need, to get ahead? Let me pray for us and ask God to help us with this one today. God, we thank you that you love us. And we confess, maybe we've never robbed a bank, but we are people who take. Often we take more than we give. We confess that to you. We confess that our only hope is Jesus, the one who gave to us while we were still takers. God, I pray that you would show up here this morning, that your spirit would lead us and give us hope and give us power to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Another way that the New Testament talks about the law versus the gospel is in Romans 13. In Romans 13, Paul says this in Romans 13. He says the commandments, 10 commandments, the commandments like do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And Paul says, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So do not steal. It's not... It's not like setting you loose, those of you who have never robbed a bank, right? It's saying, are you loving people? Are you serving people? Are you giving instead of taking? And so, yes, there is this very specific application, right? Don't cheat on your taxes. Don't rob a bank. uh, Don't take your neighbor's stuff. Very basic. Yes, don't do that. But the, the, the bigger application is to be generous. Are you someone that brings more than you've taken away? What kind of person are you? Are you a life giver? First thing I want us to think about is work. Work. We saw this in the Sabbath, and I want to hit it again because we're, we're a kind of a funny culture. We're either workaholics or we're completely lazy, right? Like they're the two extremes in our culture. We either get all of our meaning from our work, which is false religion. I want to challenge you guys that are working 80 hours and think that your existence depends on your accolades and respect that you get at work. That's a false savior. Or you run the other way and you get all your identity from pleasure and escaping work, right? Being lazy. We have quite a luxury society. We're called to give work. Paul says this very clearly in Ephesians. So Paul takes this commandment, Exodus 20, 15, do not steal. And he applies it and says what you should do is you should work. So one of the ways for us to be someone who gives more than we take is to be working people. Now, I know a lot of you are retired, right? There's a large retirement community here at Fort Hood. So I want to clarify for you. I'm not saying uh, punch a time clock for money, right? You might have a pension coming in, so you don't need to go punch a time clock to get paid anymore. That's not what work means. Work means building, making, laboring, producing, right? Go back to Genesis to get the vision of work. We're forming and shaping and filling creation. We're looking like God. That's what we're called to. So you may not need to work for money anymore right? You might have a check coming in, but you are called to work. What kind of work do you do? How do you bless other people? How do you serve other people? What does that look like in your life? We're all called to that. Um, 
in every way that we operate. Now, you might work less hours, right? You might have physical limitations. You can't work 40 hours anymore. Now you work 10 hours. You might just volunteer somewhere. That might be your work. But we're supposed to do things in this world. So Paul says it this way, Ephesians 4.28. He says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. You see that opposite thing he sets up there? He says, okay, stop stealing, right? You've just met Jesus. Don't steal anymore. Now work. You must work. He says it this way. He says, you must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. So you got to work. We're all made for that. It's good for us for one thing, right? It shapes us as people. We image God when we work. And then we also have something extra to share with other people. So there's another added benefit of that as well. So you see how this movement from taking to not just working so you have enough, but taking to working to giving. See that that movement in Ephesians 4.28? So we're we're giving more than we're taking. Uh, Proverbs 22.13 says this about work. And I'm going to throw out a bunch of verses today. So you can just stay in Exodus 20.15, thou shalt not steal. Okay, you can stay there if you want and just write down these verses because I'm going to jump all over the Bible. A lot of other references about uh, not stealing and working. Proverbs 22.13 is another one. It says, the sluggard, the sluggard means the lazy person. That's Proverbs language for the lazy guy. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. Why does he say that? The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. Or he also says this, I will be murdered in the streets. Why does the sluggard say that? The sluggard doesn't want to work. So he elevates the risk involved. Now, I just want to be clear. Sometimes when you go to work, you will get eaten by a lion, okay? It's not as common in our culture, but just think metaphorically, right? Like when you work in this world, bad things will happen to you. You will get hurt. So we're not saying that the sluggard is crazy. We're just saying he uses as an excuse not to work. There's a lion outside. I'm going to get murdered in the streets, so therefore I'm not going to work. That's what we can do. We live in a broken world. There's all kinds of reasons not to work. There's all kinds of reasons not to give. There's all kinds of reasons not to try, not to take risks. But we serve a Savior who said, I'm going to leave the perfection of heaven and enter into your brokenness where I will be hurt, where I will get murdered, where a lion will eat me. But I'm going to do that for you. And he calls us to, to be like that. We were taught it in this way as when I was a little Boy Scout, right? We would go camping. And we were taught, you always leave places better than you found them. You ever heard that? Maybe you had parents that told you that kind of thing. Like, you give more than you take. You're just going to make it better. How are you making things better? Work is one of the ways we do that. We apply our gifts, our skills. We use our hands. We use our brains. We use our temperaments. We use the things we've learned, our knowledge base, and we, we give more than we take. That's part of what we're called on to do in this, in this world. And it's an amazing world. God has, has wired it. Look at Genesis. He's wired it so that when people work, fruit is born. Things happen. It's really, it's really amazing. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's not a zero-sum game, but, but value can be added. Value can be added to this work. Second, Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Um, so throughout the New Testament, we're told to be generous to those that are hurting and poor, the orphan and the widow. So there's this, this idea that we do feed those that are hungry, um, but there's also this balancing New Testament principle that says sometimes you're going to be feeding people and helping them, and if you do it too much, you're enabling them to not work. So there's kind of left and right boundaries there. When people are in need, we help them because Jesus helped us. 
But if we do that too much and in the wrong way, we're enabling them. And then they're not working because the goal is to work. And guys, this is really important to understand in parenting. So parents, listen to me. Or if you're ever going to have kids or if you mentor anybody or if you're a teacher or if you're a commander, if you have any rule or any leadership or any influence over younger people, recognize this, that there's all kinds of ways we can lead younger people to think that work is bad. But Genesis says work is good. It's cursed. There's thorns. There are thorns. There are thistles. But work itself is good. It's something God has called us to do. We image God when we work. So we need to train our kids to work, right? Don't just train them to stare at screens, please. It's killing them. More and more studies coming out all the time. Don't just feed them Cokes and candy all the time, right? Don't just prop them up in this luxury society where all they do is play games. Teach them to work. You've got to train your kids. And what does this look like? Um, in our jobs, right? So forget just parenting, but anytime you're leading someone else, if you do it yourself, it'll be better, right? But if you bring a kid in or you bring a subordinate in and you do it with them and you're training other people to do the work, it'll be slower and more frustrating. But that's actually what we're called to, something I've been very convicted of lately. We're called to involve other people in the work. So this, this affects all of us, right? We're called to work, but we're also called to, to train up others to get involved in the work. You know, the whole thing of like letting the kids in the kitchen, especially when our kids are younger. My kids can cook better than me now, but when they were younger, right, I could make something real quick or I could invite them into the process and there would be a much bigger mess and it would take a lot longer. But now they can cook better than me, so see it worked out. There's a, there's a benefit in the end. One of the most famous parables about work is the parable of the talents. It's about silver talents that were given to different people. It's a parable in Matthew chapter 25. I grabbed a picture here of ancient silver coins from the Roman and Greek empires of the first century. Just kind of transport your mind back to that time. A talent was actually much larger than a coin. So a silver talent was like a giant uh, barbell, like a giant weight. Um, So it would have been one of the largest units of silver. So the parable of the talents is like about huge amounts of money. Now, we have like translated that down through history to talk about our gifts and our skills as well, right? So you might have a a talent for organization or you might have a, a talent for people care and that's a fair way to talk about it. But originally, in the original Greek, it means a big old hunk of silver, okay? So it's a master giving people money. But it, again, it's, it's just fine to think about what's the money you've been given and how can you serve people with it? Or what's the experience you've been given and how can you serve people with that? Or what's the gift that you have? What are you good at that you can serve people with? So it's, it's fine and appropriate to think about it at all those levels. In the parable, three guys were given a bunch of money. And the first guy takes the money, he invests it for his master and he brings back more money. He made more. And the master says, well, good, I'm going to put you, good, good, faithful servant, I'm going to put you in charge of more. Second one, same thing happens, I'm going to put you in charge of more. Interesting little detail, all three of them were given a different amount, which is kind of secondary and doesn't matter. Um, but that's true to our life, right? We all have different resources. Don't compare yourself to other people, just do something with what you've been given, okay? Second one invests it, brings back more. Master says, well done. Third one, what does he do? The third one says, Master, I just buried it in the backyard, I knew you're harsh. I knew you're unfair. He even says specifically, you take what doesn't belong to you. And the master says, you wicked servant. I'm going to then treat you in accordance with what you believe about me. And this, this 
parable horrified me as a young man because I realized that was, that's what I've been doing, right? I've been risk averse. Are you scared of taking risks with what God has given you because you think he's harsh? You think he's going to take what doesn't belong to you or what doesn't belong to him? It all belongs to him. But do you think he's going to be unfair? Do you think he's going to be harsh? Or do you think he's a generous God that loves you? When we have our, our heads set straight about who God is, it allows us to be generous. It allows us to take risks. It allows us to invest our talents instead of burying our talents. We should be a people that spend what we have. That means our money. That means our experience, our knowledge base. We go and we use it for God's glory. Are, are you doing that? Is your life marked by that kind of behavior? Or do you believe, do you have that voice in your head saying, I can't because I got to take care of myself because God certainly won't take care of me. I got to watch out for me. And those are two different faiths. One is a faith in the, in the God of the Bible. The other is a faith in yourself. And so that was, that slapped me upside the head as a young man. I realized, man, I'm, I'm not living in faith if I'm always afraid of taking risks. So now the other side of that is read the book of Proverbs, don't take stupid risks, okay? Right, there's always, <laughs> there's the other extreme there. So that doesn't mean, all right, go out and do crazy stuff, but don't hoard everything. I just watched Black Panther yesterday. It was really, really cool. I'm not, I'm not gonna spoil it for you, but there were two, two choices set up. Wakanda is this imaginary country that the superhero comes from and they have great wealth, right? And so the debate is, Will we be colonial conquerors with our power and wealth or will we continue to hoard it and hide from everybody because we don't want them to take it? And here's the slight spoiler, there's a third option. Those aren't the only two options if you have money, power, or influence. Those aren't the only two options, right? To just hoard everything or conquer everybody else, there's a third option. So you'll have to go see the movie to get the rest of it. But the parable of the talents tells us that if we believe God is good and generous then we will live in a generous way. We'll, we'll spend, we'll work, we'll produce, we'll make things. We'll, we'll give instead of, instead of taking. So just basic ways, again, we apply this. Um, we don't steal, right? We started off, that's the easy one. That's the low bar. Stop robbing banks, okay? Stop cheating on your taxes. You're laughing, but a few of you in here probably are bank robbers just based on statistics, okay? <laughs> don't rob the banks anymore. Don't, don't cheat on your taxes, Right? Stop stealing. Stop taking time from your employer. Give more than you take. But beyond that, as I talk about giving work, get a job or find a place to volunteer. Serve other people. What's an area where you can serve others? If you don't need to work for money anymore, how can you serve the community? How can you build something? What can you make? How can you make the world a better place? Serve your neighbors. You can serve in the church. Um, there's so many ways to do this. One of my favorite quotes from a, another movie called Rushmore by Wes Anderson. It's, just, it's a Jacques Cousteau quote he like finds in a book in the movie. Here's, here's the quote. When a man, for whatever reason, has the opportunity to lead an extraordinary life, he must not keep it to himself. Read it again. It's, it's one of those you got to think on for a minute. When a man, for whatever reason, has the opportunity to live an extraordinary life, he must not keep it from himself. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are that person. You have the opportunity to live an extraordinary life, and you must not keep it to yourself. We're called to give more than we take. We're called to look like our Savior, who says, I've been given everything, so now I can give 
to others. The next thing I want us to think about is giving care. Another way to say this is giving compassion. Um, So when we uh, look at what we have and we look at the options, we will recognize that there are other hurting people out there that for whatever reason need our help, and we have help that we can give them. We quoted earlier the those who don't work shouldn't eat thing, and there's a really great book called When Helping Hurts by Brian Fickert. And so if you're involved in helping people who are hurting, I highly recommend that book to you. We often read it as training for the ministry that we do in Guatemala um, to help us to think through what does it mean to empower people and help them be independent and not just give a handout that kind of makes us into a superhero or a savior, but something where we can come alongside them and say, we're broken people just like you are broken people that need a savior, Jesus, and we'll just share whatever we have to help you. And probably you have things that you can share with us that help us as well, because we're all made in the image of God. We're all sinners that need the savior, Jesus. So we have this commonality as people. So it's a really helpful book that helps you think about how, how to do that in a, in a better way. And we're always learning, right? It's, it's always ongoing experimentation. In the foreword of the book, they said um, they want to make sure that people don't stop helping people because they're doing it wrong, but that they keep helping people and just keep doing it better, right? So don't say, oh, well, I don't want to help people anymore because I messed that up. Keep going, right? Like experiment. That's what we're called to. We're going to fall. We're going to do stupid things, and we're going to learn from it, and we're going to keep going. We're going to keep trying. So a few ways that we do this at our church, we're, we're sending a team to Guatemala, right? We partner with a church in Guatemala. We serve the poor, um, oppressed Mayan people that live in the hills uh, that have been hurt and attacked. Literally, there's been civil war there for years. So we go and serve them, and we, we give what we have. But again, recognizing and honoring them as people made in the image of God. Uh, we also do all kinds of ministries throughout the week. I mean, we do addiction recovery ministry. We celebrate recovery, but we also come alongside Hope Pregnancy Center. One of the clear biblical ways to help others is caring for the orphan and widow. So our deacons care for widows within the body. Uh, our church gives money to Hope Pregnancy Center. We have a foster adopt class that meets at 1045 across the parking lot and promotes how we can care for foster children and orphans in the community. We'll have a Compassion Sunday coming up soon. So there's all kinds of different ways to do this. Question is, are we doing it and why? Do you do it because of who Jesus is to you? Or do you not do it because you think you got to take care of yourself? Or here's this other option that's a little scary. You do serve people, but you do it bitterly because you think God owes you something. Or you think if you do it enough and you serve enough, then God will have to be pleased with you. The gospel is God is already pleased with you in Christ. So because of what he's given to you, now step out and serve others. One of the common um, illustrations of giving care and compassion is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I have a picture here of someone giving CPR. Um, CPR training is a real basic way you can get trained to help someone in an emergency, right? I've taken basic first aid. I've taken CPR training. Probably half of you in the room have as well. So when you see someone, you can render aid in the moment. Jesus tells a story about someone who was laying literally by the side of the road, and he needed someone to render aid to him. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it's in Luke chapter 10. So I just want to read a little bit of that to you. In Luke chapter 10, an expert in the law, right? So read this as a very religious guy that knew his Bible really well. He walks up to Jesus, and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? And Jesus says, Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So again, it's that measure of love. Jesus says, just love everybody perfectly all the time and you'll be fine. And 
Jesus replied, actually, the guy said that. Jesus said, you have answered correctly. That is it. You'll be fine. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, but who's my neighbor, right? Because he wanted to narrow it down. So here's the thing. Love God and love all people perfectly, and you will be righteous like God. And we say, but wait, you said love your neighbor, so that means only certain people, right? Because there's some people that are not my neighbor, and therefore I don't have to love them, right? And so that's why Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was one of their people, one of the Jews that was hurt, and Jewish religious leaders were walking by the hurt Jew, and they were leaving him because they didn't want to get involved because it was too messy because they didn't have time. They didn't want to become ceremonially unclean. It would have kept them from helping other people, an excuse we use sometimes as well. But a Samaritan comes along. And the Samaritans were both racially and religiously outsiders as far as the Jews were concerned. So they worshipped the wrong gods in the wrong ways. They were mixed race. And so there was racism and kind of cultic feelings all wrapped up into this bundle of hatred that the Jews had towards the Samaritans. So Jesus particularly uses this guy as an example and says, this guy rendered aid at great sacrifice to himself he gave to serve this person who probably was trained to hate him, right? And Jesus is showing this example and he says, who's the one that was acting like a neighbor then? The guy's like, well, the Samaritan, the outsider, the hated one, the bad guy. The bad guy did the good thing. And it becomes this picture of how we should behave, right? We should love everybody, not just the good people, not just the people that look like us, not just the people that are convenient, not just the people that are easy to love, but we should just love anyone God places in our path. But more than that, it points us again to Jesus. And we see Jesus is the one ultimately that did this. Jesus is the one that that binded up our wounds and healed us and found us dead on the street in our sins, as it says in Ephesians 1 and 2. We were dead in our sins and transgressions, and he came to us, and he gave his life as a sacrifice for us. And he renews us through his resurrection power. He gives us hope. He brings us into his family. He doesn't wait for us to give enough and be generous enough and be loving enough, but he comes to us first. So again, we don't give, we don't serve others, we don't show care and compassion to others to win God's love. We do it because we believe deeply that God loved us first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So really, the law challenges us on two levels. It's saying, what are you doing? Are you loving and serving and helping people? Are you giving more than you're taking? But it also says, why? Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Are you doing it to get something? Are you doing it to show the world what Jesus is like, the one who left the comforts of heaven to come and give his life for us? The last thing I want us to see is that we should give joy. I really should have said give joyfully, but I'm kind of playing on both sides of it. We want to actually bring joy into the room wherever we go. As we give financially, Paul's going to tell us in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we want to give in a joyful way. But also I want you to think about that. Part of that is is you're actually giving joy to people. I grabbed a little picture of a smiling kid because it made me so happy. Are you the kind of person that lights up people's faces? Are you the drain? You know, like, do you Do you bring joy? Are you a blessing to other people? That's, that's what we should be like. We should bring joy into their lives. And Paul describes this as he's talking about financial giving, okay? So, right, so here's the place where I guilt you into giving more money to the church. 
Just kidding, I can't because that's not what the Bible allows me to do. Okay, so let's read it. What does it say? It says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and 9 that we don't give under compulsion. We don't give because we have to. We give out of joy. So chapter 8, he says, Brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of a most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. So he's saying this is a model of giving. These people that didn't have very much money, but they had a lot of joy, and they gave as much as they could, and they even gave really more than they should have. I think pastorally, Paul was saying, no, okay, you're giving too much, back off, right? But then he uses them as an example, and he says, man, look at their joy. They loved to give. Later in chapter 9, Paul says, says this, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So he's using a farming analogy, right? And so sowing is the throwing out of seeds into the ground. Reaping is the getting the fruit after it's grown. And so the simple concept is if you sow more, if you give more, you're going to reap more fruit. Now the health and wealth gospel twists this and turns it into, if you give more money, God will give more money to you, right? You'll have a nicer house, a nicer car, and that, that might happen. Sometimes it does, right? There's principles in the world, all things being equal. If we have a stable society, and we have good laws, and your neighbors aren't stealing things from you, if you live a generous life, generally, you'll, you'll do better in life. That is the way God has wired the world. But Jesus is our ultimate example, and he died poor, Right? So our ultimate hope is not doing better in five years. Our ultimate hope is the permanent wealth that we have, the inheritance of eternal life with Jesus. So there there is often doing better in this world. That often accompanies working hard, doing things right, being generous, but it doesn't always accompany that. Our, Our goal is to serve Jesus and to give more than we take. And he says, we'll be given back more than we can ever ask or imagine when we hit eternity. And so here he's saying, if you sow generously, If you give to ministries that share Jesus with people, you will reap generously. What does that mean? More people will meet Jesus. More people will grow in faith. More orphans will will have the care that they need. More people will hear the gospel, right? If if you give more, there will be more fruit. And that fruit isn't, it's not my fruit. It's fruit for them. And that brings us joy as as we follow Jesus, as we learn to be like Jesus, as we learn to see the world the way he sees it. So he says, each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And he's able to make all grace abound to you. He can even give you more so that you can give more. He's able to make these things abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. One of the things we've tracked over the last couple of years, our giving has gone down a little bit, and really that's because our attendance has gone down. A couple of years ago, we said, unless we uh, get this building thing finished, and unless we uh, can move more people into the evening service, we'll, our attendance can't continue to grow. We recognize that. We just have a physical limitation, and we've kind of seen that happen, right? As we've been waiting to get all these things in place, our attendance has dropped off a little bit, so our giving has dropped off a little bit. Uh, but we've also marked that our giving per person has gone up. And so sometimes y'all look at the numbers and you're like, oh no, the giving's down. I just want to say thank you because your generosity has continued to increase. So I want to say thank you for that. My prayer is that it's with joy, that you're not giving under compulsion, but you're giving cheerfully because God has given to you. 
So I want to call you to give more because of the joy of what Jesus has given to you. And I want to thank you for the generosity that you've already shown. The treasure in the field is another great parable in Matthew 13. It's this beautiful parable where a man finds treasure in a field and he says, man, this treasure is worth so much, I'm willing to sell everything else I have to go and buy this field. And that ultimate treasure that Jesus is pointing to there is the treasure of the kingdom, the treasure of being a son and daughter of God. And so really that is the ultimate thing. It cascades down to you being a caring person that shows compassion to people. It cascades down to you giving financially to ministries and to services that help others. But really the ultimate value is Jesus himself. And so that brings us full circle back to to where we started with John 10, 10, and 11. And I want to read it to you one more time. It says, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he gave himself for you? The more we believe that, the more we'll give ourselves to others. I want to call us to live that life. What are next steps you can take? Sometimes we look at all this and we think, oh gosh, I I see everything that I need to do, right? So I would say, prayerfully ask God, what is the next step I can take? Is there there a person God's calling you to come alongside to mentor to help? Is there a service God is calling you to get more involved in? A place where you can volunteer and serve others? Is there a way you could give financially more money to a particular ministry or a particular service? What is the next step you could take and say, God, show me one thing I can do this week? Again, not under compulsion, not like the elder brother in the parable of the two brothers that says, I'm going to serve so I can get something out of the Father. No, you, you serve, you give, you take next steps because you recognize all that Jesus has given you. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond together in worship. God, thank you that you have given to us, that you're the God that modeled exactly what you ask of us. And not only did you model it, but supernaturally you give us power over sin and death by taking our sins upon yourself, by rising from the dead, by delighting us, delighting in us through that sacrifice and through your resurrection. So I pray that you would help us to remember that, that we are no longer orphans, but we are sons and daughters of the King. We've been given everything in you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.